Excellent. Thank you, Fred. Julian, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Praise God. Hmm. I just feel we should just pray and seek God and Let's just have a close moment with God. We've been singing our hearts out, and uh, that's that's wonderful, and that's good. But I just, I just, I just felt as we were singing that last song. Um, Jesus was saying, the Lord was saying to us, I just want to draw a few men to myself to be closer than they are now. And I had this picture of Jesus just sitting down on a chair and he had looked like two, two leads or two cords going out and on, on one end there was, a, there was a beautiful woman and on the other one was a man, a handsome man. And... Um, when I looked closer, this, this cord was actually elastic. And um, elastic, as we know, stretches. And um, as I looked further into the picture, Jesus was so that the cord was tight. But on the lady's elastic, it was sort of dipping like this. There was no tension on it because the lady was running towards Jesus. But I also saw on the other side, Jesus was sort of pulling in on the cord and it was stretching because the man was standing with his two feet like this, not giving in to the drawing grace of Jesus. And all of a sudden the elastic got tight and it, he went that like that. And there was still that reluctance to come close to Jesus. And that's almost a natural instinct sometimes because we find that women come more easier to Jesus than what men do sometimes. But he was saying, I want a few Johns in the church. People that actually lay their head on my breast, on my lap, to be that close. So we sing, draw me close to you. Never let me go. What do we need to lay down as men sometimes to get close to Jesus? To feel the warmth of his embrace. Jesus was saying, I would have loved a man to have said this morning, Jesus, draw me close to you. but we're frightened of that sometimes. And I'm guilty of that too. You know? Lord, I thank you for those children that ran into the arms of Jesus because there was no fear Perfect love 
casts out fear. And Lord, I say as a man to men, Lord, we just want to get close to you and to know the warmth of your embrace, just the freedom of being able to sit next to you and to feel a friendship coming from the hand of God. To know your closeness, to know that as a man you understand me perfectly and completely. You understand what makes me tick, but you also know what tends to keep me at a distance from you. The Lord is saying this morning, I want some Johns who will come that close that they can rest on me. So thank you for that song, Fred, and we know it's power. Father, we just commit this time to you as we look into your word. As we've been looking at Nehemiah, we just feel that Jesus, if he'd have been in his place, in his area, you'd have had the boldness to go straight to, he would have had the boldness to go straight to you because he was a man who knew his God. He knew your heart of love and compassion and understanding. So help us, Lord, as we look at your word, as we dig into it again today. Bless it to us, Lord. Help us to receive truth. Help us to receive truth, Lord, that will affect our lives and our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to open your Bibles at Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, if I started to waffle on like I usually do, I would have heard Ezra shouting at me. Now, what about reading the word of the Lord first? Good place to start, eh? So we'll do that. Probably the most important thing we shall do today is to read from Nehemiah chapter 8. It won't do me any good being in Jeremiah, will it? I know his name ends <laughs> the same. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. That would cause a few yawns here, wouldn't it? As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively 
to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Behind him on his right stood Mattithiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah. It's all liars, isn't it? And on his left was Pediah, and Mishael, and Malkiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mishalem. And I don't see Fred there anywhere. Um, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he was standing above them, and as he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. So it is permissible to say Amen twice. (laughs) Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shapathai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebel, Hanan, and Peleiah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor... Interesting, his promotion. Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food. Not now, come back and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the bees. Calm down, calm down, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the law had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and live in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, 
From the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. We've been using Ezra and Nehemiah to give some support to our mission statement, Living Life Jesus' Way. Living life Jesus' way. That was just the first part of our statement. So we've got two very important things here this morning in the reading that we've had. One is actually the word of the Lord. The records they have of what God had said. The remembrance, too, of how God had led them and what he'd done for them in past times. Here we are, the church, and we're just looking thousands of years back to see what we can learn, how this can help us, you know, in working out, not just looking at our mission statement and remembering it, but finding some power in it to be motivated onto blessing Herm Bay, as it were. And you have here a nation of people which God dealt with distinctly, differently from any other nation in the world. He actually drew them to himself, close to himself, if you like, that he might be able to demonstrate the wonders of what he could do and for them to then go out and to bless other nations and bless people that's precisely where we are, really, is living life Jesus' way so that what we show and what we're able to demonstrate might be a blessing to others all around us. The prospective church, which was fired into motion on the day of Pentecost, had its roots and anchor in the prophetic activities of the Old Testament, some we see in the reading we've had this morning, and lots of others too in Ezra and Nehemiah. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter got up to say, what's happened today is what the prophet Joel said. He actually said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And so immediately he throws the anchor back into the Old Testament and says, look, it was there. Look, it was there. And so as we, as we read today things that Nehemiah did and Ezra and the people around them in those days, we're just throwing our anchor back, as I've said before, to get hold of some truth that will encourage us and help us and bless us as we move forward. Now, John started off this series and sort of like this. We're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah in order to support the articles of our mission statement from an Old Testament perspective. The temple worship, which was restored, the walls repaired and the gates put in place, offering security and access to that Jerusalem. And because of those gates put in place, what was beginning to happen was the inflows and outflows. Well, you can imagine what happened at the Dung Gate, can't you? It was an outflow. They didn't want the rubbish. 
So it was chucked out the dung gate. And all sorts of gates and, and, and different names they were given, and each one is significant. We're not going to go into every one this morning. I couldn't do that. But you will notice as we were reading the story this morning that the people gathered at the water gate. This was one gate that didn't have to be repaired. We say, now come on, David, what's the significance of that? We need to look at significant things. It's by the water gate. The water, the references to water in the Bible are closely linked to living truth. Water is closely linked to living truth. Truth that will set us free. Truth that will create in us the spirit of joy. Truth that will guide us for the future. Now, I, read, I just picked out in a way I was reading about Nehemiah being sort of almost promoted to governor. That was just a recognition of the way that Nehemiah was developing his gifting and his love for God amongst people. He was called the governor. He was a cupbearer. But now he's called governor. Morning, governor. How are you this morning? But that word, the understanding, the unpacking of that word is closely associated with the word apostle. What he was displaying was closely associated with the word apostle. As the church... What we do, what we say, how we operate is based on a very important fundamental truth of Scripture built on the the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So as the church, we're not just relegating any old historical evidence. It's being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Just a quick reference. John and I went to a Culture of Honour conference at, uh, at Tunbridge uh, last weekend, and um, talking to the leaders, uh, the speaker was saying, a lot of the problem with churches is that the governmental order has got out of order. And he referred to the scriptures where it says you have a list like this at least in two places. And God gave gifts to the church. He gave things to the church, apostles, prophets. I can't remember the others in order, but there was pastor, teacher, evangelist. He's given these. This is the order. He said, but what we've done as a church is, in many cases, we put the pastor at the top. And so you have a pastoral church where people love the care and attention that's been given to them by the pastor. That's right. That is good. And then you get the dominant teachers. And it doesn't matter what that teacher says, because the people love him so much, they just accept what he says. And so you get the teacher relegated to the top of the list. And then you get the powerful evangelist who with his oratory and with all his attraction by the words he says is able to draw a following after him. And so you get the evangelist stuck at the top of the list. But that's not God's order. God's order was apostles, prophets, and then they go down the list. 
Now I see in Nehemiah an apostolic, an apostolic gifting. That's why maybe he's given the word governor. Why? Because not only is he able to draw the, the people together as community and to draw in the giftings to be used and also to encourage people who are not gifted in that to actually have a go and also to say, look, this is not only for now, this is for the future. And so he was sort of establishing an, a governmental order into community. And that governmental order begins with getting back to the word of God. And so he created a sense of equality in his community with a purpose. And as I was mentioning a, few, a couple of weeks ago, that the picture of the old steam trains running on the railways throughout the land. Now you have these old steam trains, they had to get up early, put the coal in, light the fire, create a bit of steam, create a bit of pressure, and then it could go. You run out of water, you run out of coal, you're in big trouble because the train had come to a standstill. And if you remember those days, I can. <laughs> um, you used to stop and fill up with water every so often because it would run out of water. But you know, electric trains today are still running on the same rails in many places that the old steam trains did. And so they bolstered up the old steam engine so that it could get some energy to move. That's a bit like living under the old covenant and living under the laws of God in the old day. They had to build up and really work at getting the train to move. Around about in the 1960s, along came the team of engineers, and they laid alongside the tracks that had been there for several years a rail that was going to give power to a new train running on the same rails, going to the same places. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, it was a bit like that. It now fired up a new community of people to run on the rails as they were laid, on the sleepers which bore the rails, but now the train could go easily without building up steam, without having to work at it, but with a new power. And they went to those places. And so the church came onto the scene. And so Nehemiah, what was he doing? Laying sleepers and laying tracks. But there were two tracks, and we could call them the Word and the Spirit, if you like. And the sleepers we could, could call the law, which God wanted the rails to run on. But ultimately, in the end, the train was going to, from a start to a completion, to a fundamental completion, the station at the end. And if we see ourselves as the church of God moving forward in like manner, running on those same rails, picking up things, you know, which were laid down in the word of God many years ago and going on from there, we will get to the place that God intended. So there's all the prophetic type things that were laid. But the sleepers have been laid and the track has been laid 
and the train in some places is still running on the same rails. Let's hope it's not for too much longer. Not like I saw a train the other day past the level crossing, it was going across the level crossing and suddenly went like that. And then I thought to myself, if that train was going a bit past, it would be a bit of a bumpy ride for the people. But there we are. That's just an analogy. We have two things here, the Word of God and a very important feast. And both those things were instrumental in getting the people back on track. Back on track. I'm being made so very familiar with Thomas the Tank Engine again because my grandson comes two days a week and the video goes round and round and round and round and round and round and round. But there's always the train that comes off the track, you remember? And it has to be put on the track. And so here are these people being put on the track and saying, look, what God laid, the sleepers, still need to be there. We still need the rails upon them, and we still need to go forward. Now, Nehemiah was a man like that who had apostolic gifting, if you like. They weren't apostles then, but a similar name to apostle is sort of a commander, overseer, people who sits down on a chair and draws people to himself, gives them vision, shows them what they need to do, and just takes care of what's happening. So we thank God for the apostles. But if I look in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he doesn't believe in apostles today, really. So, And then I picked up the book by my uncle, Apostles Today. And I thought, I'd say, who's right, my relation? Or Wayne Grudem? My relation. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Fred. My relation, Apostles Today. So let's thank God for the apostles. Just as a simple reminder, as a church here, we do have apostolic oversight. If something went wrong here, you could go to Graham at Ashford and say, look, things aren't going right in our church. Could you give us some guidance? Give us some help? And he's a great guy. He's a great man. He would come and he would just lovingly help us and direct us and guide us. You may not need that, but he's there. And so many others with apostolic wisdom and guidance and understanding. And so as a church, working out the mission statement, there are still things that need to be there, foundational things which are of help to us. You say, well, I understand about the word of God, but I don't quite see so much about the feast. Well, you wouldn't, because it's not really important to us so much as it was to them. But you see, the tenets, if you like, of the law was more than ten commandments. There was so much more to what God. God had given a lifestyle. He'd given power. He'd given workability into the things that he said. Things that could be worked out. Things that could be done in order to proceed with power in our lives and to, and to proceed with love and commitment to God's cause in the earth. Grading McMurtry and his study guide entitles Feasts of the Old Testament, their historic, 
Christian and prophetic significance. Feasts were a part of the healthy communal life of the Jewish people and would also make the nation significant and distinctive. God has a purpose for his church in the earth which will make it significant and distinctive. We were singing this morning, Jesus' name above all other names. We will notice as the time goes on how that the name of Jesus, things will get worse in certain in places and in, in situations, but also the name of Jesus and this power that's attached to his name, you will see in the earth that gradually the name of Jesus will come to the forefront of all that's happening in the earth, because that's the church. So we're part of an ongoing thing. We're part of something which is significant and powerful in the earth. And on our evangelism day this, this year, earlier this year, I can't remember his name now, but the chap who was preaching said, the kingdom of God is now and not yet. And how do you reconcile those three things? Why? Because the kingdom of God is breaking in because it is powerful. Now, feasts that the Jewish people did and had and celebrated were all part of the kingdom of God issues that would help draw in the power of God into life here on this earth. Feasts. Feasts of the Jews. So they were historic, Christian, and prophetic in their significance. Now, Nehemiah, Ezra had come and worship had been restored in the temple. Now Nehemiah had come along and the walls had been repaired and the gates set in order, so there was inflows and outflows, the water coming into the, into the clear running water was coming back into the temple area, which could be used in worship and ritual cleansing of the priests as they could serve God. And um, things had changed. So you could sit back and look here. Good old Jerusalem, the place that God wants to dwell, the city he's built, city of our God, city of our God. But Jerusalem could not stay Jerusalem. It had to become Zion. Nehemiah couldn't leave Jerusalem and forget Zion. Now, what do I mean by that? There was so much more. Great city, God's city, Great people, great walls, all back in order now. And Nehemiah, at this stage, could have bunked off back to his job as cupbearer. But no, there was so much more, so much more to be done. And so Ezra comes out and he reads the word of God. He brings out the truth of God. and said, this is a new day not only a new year, but it's a new day. This is Revival Day. This is a not saying the same day. Not staying the same. Yeah, sometimes we as believers, we get to the position and we feel stuck. And at times like that, it's not staying the same day. God wants us to move on 
from where we are. And sometimes there are certain things which stick us up and stop us from moving on. But this was revival day. Not only was the word of God, but when they read it, they found that there was something they could do now to help them go on. Let's have a feast. Because God said, let's have a feast. And so they had a feast because God said it. So they had a feast. So this was the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll go to a little bit in a minute. We're aiming to live life Jesus' way, and much about what we learn about him and from him comes from him being a Zion dweller and not a Jerusalem citizen. And sometimes we forget what it was to Jesus. If you um, look in Matthew 5, verse 17, <coughs> we're looking at the law, at the people, the, the people of God, the nation of Israel, getting back into the law of God several hundred years beforehand, about 450 plus, something like that. And here, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen that was in the writings of the law, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And God has provided a way through Jesus because he fulfilled the law and all its requirements in order for the life to be known and followed and felt by future people. Living life Jesus' way, what does that really mean? Here was Jesus. He fulfilled all that the law required. Now, he did it all. Whatever was said here, he actually did. And sometimes we feel, oh, yes, here's, here's Jesus, the powerful son of God. He did that because of that. And he was able to do that because he had power. But where did he get his power from? He did it by doing it God's way. So the power release came through him doing it God's way. And so what we're building our lives is building it upon a man who did things God's way. The law and the commandments. Now we're not called to keep the law as such, and there are several things that don't apply now under the new covenant. But the reason why they did them, and what could be learnt by doing them, is available through Jesus who actually did that. And so we're living life Jesus' way. 
And so our mission statement is a bit like turning a Jerusalem into a Zion. Zion, city of our God. Not just a building, not just a place, but where the life of God was manifest with all its power from day to day and week to week and month to month and year to year, knowing the constancy of God's power in them. Now, it's lovely here in this passage that we've read that immediately they get to this place, the joy of the Lord flows back into the community. And that was a position of strength. That was a place of strength. That was knowing the abundant life of God in your life. The abundant life of God within. And so we're saying we just don't want to be a church keeping to regulations and rules. We want to be a church that lives life by the Spirit of God. We need to be a church standing by the water gate who knows that underground there's running water and not stagnant water. The priests were not allowed to wash in water that had been standing in a pot to stagnate. They had to wash in water that was running and fresh and clean to be able to do the service of God. And all these things are sort of significant in their own way. And some of you, you may understand, and some of you might not, not get it, and that, that's, that's not the problem. But just to know, you know that water in a pot can stagnate. But running water. And we had John 4 the other day. Julian brought to us John 4 and the well. And Jesus said, I can give you living water. What is going to draw out the world? Not quite sure, but what he had to give was running water, clean water, that which came from within, not which had to be got from outside. And the people in those days, and probably the lady that came to the well, she was living, she was living on water, maybe in a pot that had probably stagnated over a time. But living life in the Spirit of God. This was a day of revival. It was a day of a coming of the Spirit of God into community so that they might know fresh power, fresh life to help them move on. So Jesus was living a Zion life and not just as being a citizen in Jerusalem. And we're drawing on that power of Jesus. Time to engage with God and encounter him. The, tenet, the tenets of the, the law were principles that were valid and authoritative. In other words, you could use them. They were valid and authoritative. And there's still things we read in the New Testament, the New Testament letters that give us things as believers, things which are valid and authoritative in our life to make progress in the Christian life. Jesus was actually an extremely knowledgeable teacher of Jewish religion. He was called a rabbi, but he's also known as a practitioner of what he knew. And Fred was mentioning this morning in worship, you know, we know these things, but we find it so difficult to practice them and to do them. Jesus practiced what he spoke. They knew him as that sort of man. What he says, he does. 
And sometimes we forget that the essence of Jesus' life and power was based upon the law, which he kept and taught. It would be a very false image if he didn't experience Satan's wiles and attacks and didn't experience rejection and hatred. It would be a false image if he didn't experience temptation. It would be a false image if he didn't need to be contemporary in his generation. But he experienced all of that. Now Jesus had come. The temple and its walls had to be complete and intact and at least operational so that Jesus approximately 480 years later could relegate its time of significance to a completed area of history so that the emerging church could fulfill its prophetic significance, which was living life Jesus' way. That's the prophetic significance, living life Jesus' way. But there was so much more. It was time for revival. And what was Ezra doing? He was standing up and saying, now hear, now hear the word of the Lord. That's the Negro spiritual, isn't it? Now hear the word of the Lord. Your toe is connected to your foot, and your foot's connected to your ankle, your leg, and your knee. And it finishes off by, now hear the word of the Lord. And as we come together, there's that pressure, if you like, that force that's coming forward to us. Now hear the word of the Lord. The feasts were what they call convocations. They were celebrations of solemnities. In other words, they celebrated a past event but had a prophetic significance for the future. Take, take if you like, the Passover. You remember the time that God that drew them out of Egypt and rescued them from the Egyptians. Helped them to move on. Supernaturally looked after them and brought them gradually into the land that he wanted them to be. But it also had prophetic significance for when Jesus was going to come. He was going to rescue people. He was going to rescue people and give them a hope and a future through what Jesus did. And Jesus is our Passover lamb as a sacrifice. And within we, we remember that. I mean, in communion, we remember that Jesus was sacrificed for us. And so what happened then was a, had prophetic significance to a future event. And in these feasts, it's the truth of God being manifest. But they were celebrating it. It was a time of celebration. But they were called, you know, a remembrance of solemnities, you know. It was a solemn thing, but let's celebrate because God's in it. God's in control. He wants to take us forward. He wants to move us on. So it was by this water gate that they first learnt, hey, let's get back to what God said. Let's get back to what God said. Let's move on. We don't want to stagnate. We just want to move on. What is it to stagnate? 
is to deprive of vitality and render futile, especially by enfeebling and repressive influences. That's what stagnate means. I think as Christians, sometimes we feel and know that sort of activity in our life, to deprive of vitality. Sometimes we don't feel like rejoicing. And so water, as it stagnates, it's being deprived of its vitality. It's also, there is an enfeebling process or repressive influence by stagnating. In other words, you know, if it gets stale and if it gets disease and stuff in it, it could actually do you harm. It could actually do you harm. But the word of God is like living water to our souls. And quickly, and I will close. This is just shown in the parable of the sower. The first thing that we read in the parable of the sower is that Satan snatches away the word lest people will believe and be saved. That's a repressive influence. That is Satan enfeebling people who are listening to the truth. Satan snatches away the worst, lest they will believe and be saved. So God's work of salvation can be undermined. The people say, well, it's not put this salvation business. I, well, I'm okay, you know, I, I don't hurt anybody, and I do what is good, so I just don't need that salvation. That stagnation of the truth. Because the Bible tells us to believe on the Lord Jesus, and we will be saved. The whole concept of salvation is finding opposition from evil activity all around us. Beware. What else do we find in there? Once you believe, it will be tested. And I've said this so many times. If you say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I've given my life to him, it's so much better now, I don't want to go back, but that will be tested. God's intention is to prove your faith genuine. He's about proving my faith is genuine so that we can actually be partners in it. Not just zombies believing a re- almost relegated truth, but are people being empowered by the truth who to say, yes, it helps me. It's done me good. And I can actually do something. I can, the Holy Spirit helps me now. I have a power outside of myself to do what's right. It's not just to say, oh, I believe it's all okay now, la, la, la. No. Our faith will be tested to prove that it's genuine. Like Peter said to the scattered tribes, that your faith may be proved genuine. And what happens? In the parable of the sower, people fall away and it's found not to be genuine. They believe for a short while and they say, oh, well, it's not doing anything for me. It's not important. Oh, yeah, it's just not important. It's superficial. Other priorities take over in your life and the things of God are relegated to the bottom shelf. You say they're not important and they choke. That's what the parable said. Jesus said they choke the word. And it explains what they are. Worries. What's your worry at the moment? What you, what's really your worry this week? Is it taking over? 
is actually being predominant in your mind, to say, let's beware, because this can choke the word of God in my life. Not only worries, it goes on to the cares of this life. Has your life got so busy that you're just caring about so many things that time for God and the things of God seem to be set aside? I just don't seem to be able to have that time now. The cares of this life. It can make our lives, as the sower says, unfruitful. Unfruitful. We've gone out of time. I must stop. But what was said in the past is for our learning today. The way Jesus did it is our point of learning. Living life Jesus' way. Time to engage with God and encounter him. May God bless us and help us to move on as a church, to go on from where we are now. This was revival day. Is it going to be revival day for you, for me, today? Coming back to the place God wants us to be? Could be. Could be. Just one more thing before I close. Just as a little bit of interest, what we're doing maybe. In 52 days, the walls were built and they were back in order. Now 52 is made up of two numbers, 40 and 12. 40 speaks in the Bible of probationary periods in people's lives where they learn to understand and know God better. Jesus had 40 days in the wilderness. Moses had three slots of 40 years in his life, and each slot of 40 years was a probationary time for him to move on with God. And we're going through a probationary period in our lives, each of us, as the people were then. The people were in the wilderness, wandering around for 40 years. God was proving them and testing them. And God will do that. Twelve has to do with authoritative, governmental, foundational issues which need to be always in place, like the apostles brought. You have the twelve who were the foundational apostles, twelve apostles if you like. There were others, but they were there to establish the church and then others took over. And the idea of twelve comes in and this is what brought 52 days, lots of things to think about, lots of significant things, but it helps us to think, and it helps us to move on with God. In 52 days, it was ready for a new day. Father, we thank you so much that you've got everything worked out for us to do with life, to do with situations, to do with the future. And we just thank you now, Father, that um, we have the opportunity to go forward. We have the opportunity of revival. Holy Spirit, would you come upon us in a new way, each of us as individuals today, help us to see the light, help us to move on in the power of your name. For your sake, for your glory, amen. Thank you. There's um, some tea and coffee and it's prayer time.